welcome to Quick Link Podcast. Today I'm joined by a man who's done, like, he's a former British pro, um, uh, and he's even, you know, to many of you, he's the voice uh, or one of the many voices of the Tour de France and of GCN in general. It's Dan Lloyd. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Re- recovering from the tour whilst I continue to keep tabs on the Tour de France fam, um, which is great, but means that I'm still spending most of my day watching or reading about cycling. <laughs> I guess, is that an occupational hazard in general anyway? Like, do you, are you actually able to switch off from, from cycling? Uh, I'm sure I could if I wanted to. Like this week, I'm not really working, in inverted commas, but... I just love bike racing. And so even when I'm not working or if it's a weekend and it's a real bugbear of my wife, Lorraine's that I can be working a week or maybe six days a week. And if it's a Sunday that I've got off and there's a big race on or any race on really that I'll try and set some time aside to watch that in the afternoon, uh, just because I really enjoy watching the racing. But, um, you know, there, there, there are definitely moments when I feel guilty that I should be doing something else with the family whilst I'm still watching a bike race at home. Yeah, so I, I guess um, that that must become quite problematic, and just especially because Sunday is always the day when there's a bike race on, like a Monday or a Tuesday in a week. Usually the quiet day, isn't it? Like, so yeah. I can imagine Sunday being a, a quite painful day. Yeah, oh, it's not too bad. I, it's I think because I because Lorraine met me when I was a cyclist, and so it's always been a big part of my life. I don't really ride my bike anymore. And so it's not as though I'm going out on a Saturday morning and a Sunday morning for a, a three hour ride. It, it's, it's just the races in the afternoon. And I guess the advantage of having it now on your phone is that if you're out and about, you can just kind of keep your eye on it without being fully concentrated on the race. But it's just nice. It's nice to be in a, in a job, which is also your hobby and your passion. It certainly makes work a lot easier. Yeah, I can imagine. And is that how you got into cycling? Was it from being a fan? Because I don't want to sound rude or anything, but you're of a generation where British cycling wasn't huge, you know. Uh, so I got into it through mountain biking, which wasn't huge e- either, but it was it was certainly sort of a, a young and fairly popular sport in the mid nineties when I got into it. Um, it was just for a mate of mine when I was about 13, whose uncle used to give him MBUK magazine. And I was around his house and, and started reading that and decided that I wanted to get a mountain bike, which many months later, my dad got me for Christmas. And then I found a local race and did that and did very badly, but was immediately looking for when the next mountain bike race was. So that was the start of my journey in cycling. Basically, I knew nothing about road. Um, for quite a few years after I started racing, I was just fixated with with the off-road discipline um, and then started road riding for training and then did a first road race when I was probably 17, I think, and then went on from there. Oh, wow. Uh, and when you sort of started focusing on road, did you have any specific goals in mind? Like what did success for 17-year-old Dan look like? Uh, I always find it hard to pinpoint when I I mean I always took it quite quite seriously but if you if you looked back at my results as a mountain biker there was never really any anything that would point to one day being good enough to turn pro I mean mean, the main reason I went from mountain biking to full-time road because I I combined the two for two or three years was just because the 
the sort of heyday i would say of, of cross-country mountain biking in particular was sort of mid to late 90s there was a lot of sponsorship i think there was a lot of basically speculation that it would be a big tv sport and there'd be a lot of money in it um and, and that waned a bit and i and i i knew that i wasn't really going to be good enough to be one of the top mountain bikers to to be able to make a living out of it and i thought well i'll give it a go on the road because there looks to be more people that are able to make a career out of it on the road so but i mean i i i sort of persevered for many many years on the on the road without earning very much money and it wasn't until i was 28 basically that i got a decent opportunity so i could equally be um sat at home having to start afresh at 29 without anything really to look back on but yeah thankfully i've got three years at, at a decent level again without huge results but enough to allow me to do what i've done since yeah and, and how did that feel when i assume that's uh when you joined Savello test team um later garmin Savello. like what was that like going from uh, was it and post sean kelly at the time um like did you think of that as like oh here's my my big shot to to make it huge or you're just like oh this will give me some security and a bit of comfortability uh i think it was i think there was a few things going through my head at that point i mean firstly i there came a point where i'd become quite realistic as to where i could get to in the sport um i think the first part of that was getting a power meter in 2004 i think it was I think up until that point, I'd always felt like if I really put everything into it and I was extremely dedicated and I and I gained knowledge and nutrition and training and everything else that goes into performance, that my trajectory would in the end, you know, not allow me to to do to win the biggest race in the world, but certainly to be up there. And I think getting a power meter, even though there weren't many data points out there at that at that moment in time, there were enough that I saw the chasm between me and some of the best riders in the world. So I think that was the first point where I thought I'm never going to win the biggest races. Like that's just, that's outside the realms of, of my physiology. And it was quite similar with Savella really. Obviously I was hugely excited to finally be in a big team. And I, and I, and I thought now is the point where I'm going to realize what the secrets are beyond what I've been reading on in books and magazines and on the internet and, hearing from different people to sort of arriving there and and fairly quickly realizing that I knew more than pretty much all of the other riders and to a degree the coaches about about modern training and, and everything else that goes with it so I guess that was a second realization that um although it was great to be there that I'd I'd got fairly close to my ceiling by that point already and there probably wasn't a lot extra that I was going to be able to eke out of myself how do you cope with that mentally then because like yeah as you said like you're thinking or you go into the sport going oh yeah I want to win the biggest races and, and be competitive and then you go actually I need to be a bit more realistic about where I can go to like how yeah that... I, I mean um I think by that you know it wasn't I wasn't in my early 20s now like I said I was, I was in late 20s and um you know you're a bit more mature by that age and I'd, I'd become fairly realistic I guess so I, I was a bit more like a I always describe myself as like a fan that happened to be in a, a good team for a few years um you know to, to be teammates with people like Carlos Sastre and Torhu Shoft and the other riders in the team was 
was amazing you know there'd be people that I'd only watched on tv and seen in the magazines and on websites etc and all of a sudden I was teammates with them but I mean I I did about as well as I think I could have done in those in those three years like I said I was quite realistic as to what I was going to be able to do so I, I didn't really have any of my own ambitions by the time I got there I was like well now I'm here I know I'm never going to be a team leader so I'll do the best job I possibly can for the people that are leading the team and hope that they sort of appreciate what I do enough to carry on getting a contract for a few more years which is what happened for the first first couple of years it um you know, like I said, it went it went reasonably well from my point of view in terms of performances and helping the others out. Um, so I yeah, I just had an absolutely fantastic three years basically. But basically, as a as a fan that happened to be racing some of the some of the best races in the world. Yeah, and what's it like to ride in service of like Carlos Astra at uh, the Giro? I believe you said. Well, I, I think I've heard you on commentary mention it, and it sort of stuck with me. Um, but you rode for Sastra at the 2010 um, Giro and the Tour. Um, mm-hmm. And likewise, I assume for Till Hushoft at, um, and possibly Andreas Clear at the Tour of Flanders. Like, What's it like riding for those leaders and were they appreciative of your work? Yeah, they were. Um, I mean, Tour is quite a quiet character in general. Um, I think it's fairly easy. I had this, I had this throughout my time in cycling i remember when i was with i got i got an opportunity with the rally mountain bike team which was the biggest at the time and i was kind of on like a i don't know what it was called it was more like a development squad but i got to race with with some of the elite riders like barry clark and nick craig etc nick craig was riding the diamondback but it was part of the same distributor in the uk at the time um and I remember Nick being incredibly open and encouraging and Barry being a bit more standoffish. And I was sort of thinking, I, I don't think he likes me very much because I was at 18 at the time. But when I look back on it afterwards, it was it was just that Barry's quite a quiet character and it wasn't him being arrogant or dismissive. He just didn't have much to say and wanted to get on with what he was doing. Um, and it was it was not dissimilar with, with Tor to an extent. Like he's just, he was concentrating on what he was doing. He's not really a huge extrovert. And Carlos was just um, just a very pleasant character, but there was little little parts that you saw when you were teammates with him where you realised why he'd got to where he did because he was incredibly driven and concentrated. So whilst he was relaxed most of the time, if there was something that he did feel was not done as well as it could be, then then he'd stand up and he'd he'd say it. But um, I, my my experience in that team was that there just wasn't really there wasn't an idiot there you know there was no one that would be um sort of dismissive of you or and my wife always talks really dearly about about those years in terms of whenever she went out to watch a race which wasn't hugely often but when they did with, with my older son Ralph he was quite young at the time they'd always be welcomed by the riders and, and the other riders families etc so it was yeah, it was quite it was a really nice atmosphere within that that team and and very welcoming oh that's really nice to hear and I guess one thing I do think is quite interesting is, um, again, recalling hearing you on commentary say about riding for Carlos and how when you got to mountains, he'd just sit at the back for ages, almost like infuriatingly so, that you'd be like, oh, yeah. come on, we need to get to the front. Like, Did you ever find that, because you said you you sometimes knew more than the coaches, like despite the fact that you're you're a domestique and you're, you're realistic about that were there ever times that you kind of led it in that sense of 
hey, I've got this extra knowledge. I think it's going to benefit us. Or did you just uh, sort of sit back? No, I sat back. I mean, I'm firstly not that type of character. You know, you, hmm. you get you get people that are great road captains because even though they know they're not as good as the people they're working for, they're quite assertive. They've just got that people management skills, you know, I guess a bit like a, a Luke Rowe really would have with, with Ineos and plenty of other examples in other teams. Hmm. Whereas I'm just not really that type of character. And of course, I was so new to it as well. But, you know, the knowledge that I had was more about um, sort of training and power meters and 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 even to a degree, things like rolling resistance and drivetrain efficient. You know, I was sort of very into that in in sort of mid two thousands. Really, once I could get onto an internet forum, and there was all sorts of geeky people that I loved reading what they were doing. Um, but it was less. It was less about tactics. So, in terms of what you were just saying, it was more that um, you just had to learn what your whoever you're riding for how they like to ride and of course if you're a sprinter or a classics rider then they've got no they've got no issue with the argy bargy of being towards the front and and you can almost guarantee that if you don't look behind you they're still going to be on your wheel if you've been trying to keep them at the front or take them to the front whereas carlos was like um you know a few people that you'd see now that like they don't like being at the front and all of the the carnage that goes with it or the the battling that goes with it he just preferred to be relaxed knowing that once he got to the climbs he'd be able to sort of dance on the pedals and go around most people and yes it would be a bit more energy but he'd have saved a lot of physical and mental energy before he even got there i'm not sure it would work necessarily in the modern era you know this was back in the days where being at the front meant being in that sort of bubble behind a line of a team of riders that were working on the front whereas whereas being at the front now means trying to be in the second row because the bunch is completely spread from one side of the road to the other so you know though the the dynamics of the bunch has changed a lot in the last 10 years or so and like i said i'm not sure you get away with with what carlos used to do of being particularly relaxed at the back all the time yeah i know you said like other riders and immediately as soon as you said that i was like thinking of of who that could be and like steve cummings is is historically one and then Straight after that, Ethan Hater in today's mm-hmm. peloton is definitely one of those those style. Um, but and you can see it go wrong. I think that, was it Criterium du Dauphiné this year. Um, Ethan got involved in a couple of crashes. And I, I, yeah, I, it's, I, yeah, I completely get what you're saying. Like it's harder to make it work nowadays. I think so. Yeah, but then. I don't think that there's a safe part of the bunch anymore. <laughs> well, um, that's true, yeah. Like I said, I mean, the, the if you if you go back 10, 12, 15 years, the, the shape of the bunch will be a line of one team or a couple of teams working, and then there's a bubble of riders. And, and like I said, staying near the front meant being kind of on the edge of that bubble. And if somebody let's say you're on the right side of the bubble and a rider comes past you that you want to get your the, your front wheel over to the right of their rear wheel so that you can always sort of always still be there at the front and it, you know not every rider was comfortable in doing that and it, you know once you had the mentality of i've always got to move up as opposed to the mentality of i'm at the front i can relax because all of a sudden you're near the back again um but but now it's just you hear the riders saying that they have to start riding earlier and earlier because they don't, there's just literally not a way past anybody. It's it's side to side along the road and you can't, unless you're Sagan or, or somebody like him, you can't weave your way through the middle. It's just, 
it just doesn't work. So you have to be there really early. And there are just there are just riders that aren't comfortable with that, which is which is fine. You know, there's others that really like the jostling and, and the shoulder shoulder to shoulder stuff, et cetera, et cetera. But it's it's not it's not for everyone. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Um I know how I would fit in there and absolutely I wouldn't um, not just physiology uh, from a sort of physical point of view, but also like, I don't like that sort of fighting. Um, I was either at the back or off the front. Um, yeah. which... No, I enjoyed it. I mean, that was, yeah. I think, I think without that ability, then there's no way I would have been pro. I mean, one, one of the things I was good at was making sure I was in the right place at the right time and and being in position when it mattered. Um, and without that, there's just no way I had the physiology to make up for being further back. Whereas, whereas other right, I mean, at the top of the top is the people that have everything, right? They've, yeah. they've got the physiology, they're able to position themselves, they've got good bike handling, they are extremely motivated and dedicated to the sport. So if you've got everything, you'll be at the top of the pyramid. And then if you go down one side of the pyramid, you'll find someone like me that's very, very motivated, hugely driven, not limited physiology, but limited compared to the best people, um, but with decent bike handling skills and decent positioning. And on the other side of the pyramid, meeting basically where I was or where somebody of my skill level was and physiology was, you would have somebody that's incredibly gifted physiologically um, that maybe didn't like the positioning side of things and maybe didn't have the great bike handling um so the pyramid just goes down like that in, in all sports i think it's just it's just the nature of the beast yeah it really is um one of the so uh, just to let you in a bit of a background like we have a, a group chat where and i mentioned that i'd be interviewing you and we had a ton of questions just come up from us um uh, and one of them was, um, what was the, the best race you've ever been involved in? Whether that's best race in terms of your performance, in terms of results, or just grandeur even? Like, what would you say was, was your single best race? Um, the one that always stands out to me is the Tour of Flanders in 2009. Um, and, and you'll probably find other stuff online where I've already said this before, so, so apologies for not changing it, but... Um... I think that was just a culmination of so many years of trying to get into a decent level team and finally being there. And I remember just pinching myself, just being in the, in the in the parking at the start with all the other teams that this was a race that I'd loved so much on television for so many years that I couldn't believe I was there. And at the time it started in Bruges and there was a big square for the team parking and then you, you rode down a sort of tunnel of spectators and there was another huge area where they did the podium uh, presentation of all of the teams and, and you know it's like in Belgium there were just so many people there so I just had goosebumps on all over basically when I was riding to the podium and on it etc just not believing that I was there um but then in the race I, I just actually felt really good I mean it was the old course so the Quaramont Paterberg double header came much earlier in the race but I was at the front for both and I remember being on the Paterberg and being behind Potzato and Bonin in the top 10 of the race and again sort of pinching myself thinking am I going to wake up and realize this is all just a, a fantasy dream um, but down the other side of that it was the same running that we have now to the Koppenberg so the point at which Dylan van Baal seems to attack every year uh, Andreas Clear had seen me in the front group and said if you can go now it's a great place to attack it will put us on the front foot so I went there 
and Sylvain Chavanel, um, Manuela Quinziato, Life Host, uh, and maybe one or two others went with me. So now I'm going up the Koppenberg at the head of the Tour of Flanders with you know some really really good riders. Um, so it was just a it was just a brilliant memory. I mean, my lights went out on the Valkenberg, which is one of the last climbs before you got to Karlsberg, and and at that point I'd been dropped from the break. And I remember Pozzato and Bonin and Stein Devolder, who went on to win it, just coming past me at, at warp speed. And yeah, like I said, my my lights had gone out, but um, that will always stand out in my memory as as a day where actually I was I was all right, and it was a big race, and I loved every minute of it. Wow, yeah, that that sounds incredible. Just to describe it as like, oh yeah, I was off the front ahead of Bonin and all these sort of huge stars of the cobble world that yeah that sounds incredible yeah, uh, no, it, was, it was just a, it was just a great experience and um you know it was those sorts of days before that year that it always kept me going because I, I think most people's advice and certainly my advice to myself if I if I was to talk to 26 year old me would have been you know you, you've given it a good go just knock it on the head now because you're gonna have to do something else when you finish doing this um, but I always had like a day or two each year in a, you know, not a big race because I couldn't do them with the teams that I was in, but in the races where I was up against bigger name riders and bigger teams, et cetera, I always had the odd day or two where I felt, actually, I wasn't too far off that day. Like I, I rode pretty well and that was always what kept me going. And I think, you know, that that race in particular, whilst I didn't win it and was never going to win it, I was sort of part of the action and part of the team's tactics, et cetera, to a degree where I thought, you know, I there's going to be an end to this pretty soon, but actually what, what I'm doing right now, I'm quite satisfied with. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds incredible. And like, I know you mentioned um, your advice would have been to yourself to, to knock it on the head much earlier, but what made you decide like enough's enough and I'm, I'm going to retire. Was it just waking up one morning and you're like, Oh no, this is it. Like I, I can't do this forever or, or how did uh, that no, happen? But- it was, I just didn't get a contract renewal in 2011 um, when I was with Garmin Cervelo. Um, they, they, Cervelo test team had stopped and then there'd been some sort of deal done where they took a, a port that Garmin took a proportion of our rides. I think there were seven of us from the classics team, basically. Um, and I'd re-signed with Cervelo at the start of 2010. So I had a two year deal which came to an end at the end of 2011. Um, yeah, and I didn't have the best of years that year. I didn't really, not only did I not get any results, I wasn't really particularly great in supporting the rides that I needed to when I was racing. Um, and so I just didn't get a contract renewal and and looked around it. But it was the year that, C- CSE, it was the year that uh, HTC were folding. Mm. And I think in, I've always said to people, like, if, you're almost better off being in the team that folds than you are in a team that's not folding, which sounds, I know it sounds strange, but if you let me explain it, it's when, when Cervelo disbanded, although only seven of us were taken across to another team, I think all but one of the riders found a contract at world tour level or a couple at pro continental level, because I think lots of the managers look at these teams disbanding and think that was a good team. Like who can we get? Mm. And it was the same with HTC that year. It was like such an amazing team. You know, everybody was sought after by another squad. But, you know, whilst I was disappointed at the time, it was always going to come to an end at at some point. I I would have quite happily carried on for another couple of years or however long I got a contract for. 
but the the reality was that I'd sort of bridged some of a gap through the way I was training and everything else that I was doing to people that were far better than me and at the point after that where all of the coaches and the riders learnt how to train better and how to do things differently that that gap would have extended back out again and I would have been basically hopeless I think hmm. um so I, I was you know always looking back I was quite it worked out very well for me not to get a renewal that year because it allowed me to start doing something else in my early 30s as opposed to mid 30s or whatever it might have been um and I, like I said I just had a really good three years yeah uh, and that's something else I assume is GCN um yep and I, I know time is rapidly trying to beat us um but like how did that start and and what was like looking back to that time do you think it ever or did you ever foresee it would get as big as it is now no I didn't um so so in 2012 I had basically a transitional year where I didn't really know what I was doing but I'd um I sort of secured some commentary with RCS Sport who do all the big Italian races and also a little bit of Eurosport and then after I'd got that a guy called Ian Whittingham a friend of mine that is um, one of the co-owners of Sigma Sports. They had a team at the time. They said, well, "Why don't you Why don't you race for us? We'll, we'll let you do the commentary and anything anything else that you've um, already got organised." So I did that. So I was doing some domestic racing, did Tour of Britain at the end of the year. But um, between times, I was commentating and doing other bits. And it was that year that I met Simon Ware, who's still my boss to this day because he'd started a company called Shift Active Media, which was an agency that worked with Colnago and Wigo and a bunch of other companies. Um, and they also did some production of, of cycling videos, which you know, cycling video wasn't what it is now back in those days. But one of the sponsors of Sigma Sports was called IG Markets, and they um, they wanted to activate their sponsorship of Team Sky because they, they were on the back of the shorts at the time. And so they wanted to do some preview videos of, of Giro stages, tour stages, tour of Britain stages. And they asked me if I'd present them. And they asked Shift Active Media if they would produce them. And so I, I can never pinpoint, I remember exactly when I met Simon, but um, it was in that year at some point. And in that same year, he'd got a contract with Google to, to run a cycling YouTube channel. Um, and towards the end of it, once the deal had been signed, he asked me if I'd be the first presenter. And, and so it went from there. But I, no, I, I didn't believe it would would get to this point. I don't know where I thought it was going. But Simon's a person who is very easy to believe. He's such a determined and um, motivating character that when you had when you had doubts in your mind, you only need to speak to him for 10 or 15 minutes. And all of a sudden you're like, yeah, that, that makes complete sense. And mm. so you know, that was why I sort of stuck around, you know, cause I think there was points in the early years where I preferred doing the commentary to making videos on YouTube. Um, but every time I spoke to Simon, it, it reignited my, mo my motivation for what, for what we were doing, because basically anything that he said was going to happen or that we do, we would end up doing. And so if you have somebody that, that is just telling you bits and pieces and then they go on to be true, it's very easy to stay motivated because you're like, well, we're on this journey and, and, you know, he's, he's the leader of our company and he's taking us on this journey. Um, Yeah. He, he was very inspiring throughout. Hmm. 
Yeah, um, so obviously this is a, a quite contentious and hot topic at the moment, but as a former pro going into commentary, how do you sort of maintain objectivity? Because, you know, some of those, some of the people you're commentating on, they're going to be your mates or former teammates or just people you got on with in the peloton. Like, how do you, are you able to even be objective or do you just see it differently? Uh it's a very good question. I mean, I I don't have many mates in the current peloton. I I'm not someone that's very good at keeping in touch with people, whether it's sort of former <laughs> colleagues or friends or family. It's um, but I mean, obviously, there's a there's a tendency, I think, to talk more about the English speaking riders than the foreign riders. I think partly, and that's not because you know them through knowing them. It's just because. You know, I tend to read English written media and watch English coverage of bike racing, and that's naturally more skews towards English speaking riders. Um, but I don't, I think I'm sort of fairly neutral when I'm talking about different teams. I mean, it, it's almost not for me to say really, It'd be more other people that would notice if I'm if I'm more biased towards one team or the other or one rider versus the other. Um, I think you it's a really difficult subject. I think it's fine to be a fan of the sport and, and the best people to come and say are the ones that are really passionate about it, which means being a fan of the sport. You just have to sort of check yourself every now and again if you feel like you're speaking more about one person who whose style of racing you perhaps like more than others, um, so that you can be objective and 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 not sound biased one way versus the other but it's also a strange one that I think particularly um you have a lot more people on, on social media poking at the English speaking commentators and you, you know if, if you're a Colombian commentator and you go nuts when Quintana or Bernal does something special you know that'll be shared on English me English speaking media won't it it's like listen to this person going nuts if if Rob Hatch went nuts for an English rider doing well, more so than anybody else, then the, then the English-speaking social media world would, would be dead against that. But I think if you're Colombian, Spanish to a degree, Belgian, Dutch, then it, it's, it's let go a bit more. And I think, you know, that's because mainly if, if you're listening to to Flemish commentary you're probably from Belgium you want to hear more about the Belgian stars and you want to you know hear more excitement when they're doing well it's I think it's something that's not unique to the English speaking side of commentary but it's certainly different from one language to the other but I you know in terms of my own attitude towards it I don't think I have a an affinity towards like I said one team versus the other or one rider versus the other but other people that listen might disagree but I'm always happy for people to point it out like I'm very open to suggestions or, or criticism I, in fact I, I spend quite a lot of time looking for it because you can always improve and that was how I went about cycling as well I was always trying to find some way of of getting better year on year or month on month and I'd say I'm the same with with presenting or, or with commentary really I, I spend a lot of time looking at, at feedback and it's not that I will look at one um, critical comment and necessarily change anything but I'll try and look at, at, at trends of feedback for, for all of us that are commentating and and if there's a general trend that lots of people's opinion are saying that this is not done very well then we, we'll try and improve upon that.
and that's something I, I've noted is that you seem very receptive to feedback uh, and you know if ever I've messaged you um, you know I, I feel like something will be done if I mention something you know it's not like I'm just shouting into the void almost um, but equally I, I try not to be critical of of commentators because everyone has their own taste um, yeah and, and you, it's it's nice that there's so many people that are passionate about it um i think i tweeted earlier on this year that my one conclusion i didn't start the tour de france actually what my one conclusion from from searching out feedback everywhere is that there is not a commentator that everybody likes it's just it's impossible yeah um the great thing about cycling is there are so many days of racing every year that you can have a spread of commentary teams and commentators and and hopefully within that there's something that people will like but there's always going to be people that that are critical towards stuff it's it's just the it's human nature and i think it's get it's getting worse and worse um and it you know for me it, it doesn't matter for me, right? Because I, I've spent ten years reading YouTube comments. I've got a very thick skin at this point. Yeah. And so if I, if I put something out, or if somebody um, says that I'm really shit at what I do, it, honestly, it doesn't affect me. Like I can, but there, are, there are a lot of people that even if they sound really confident in commentary, or even if they look really confident presenting whatever they're doing, you don't know whether they're going to be extremely hurt at reading something. And I, and I think a lot of people in the public that give feedback that's overly critical, they're probably not even expecting you to read it, let alone respond to it. Unfortunately, we had to leave it there because the Zoom gremlins just decided that they'd had enough and cut us off. Very ungracious of them. I'm very disappointed with them. I will be having words and, if possible, speaking to their manager. However, it was a lovely chat with Dan. Um so much that we just didn't get to so i think we're gonna have to have him on again aren't we and i'm certainly not complaining because it was a lovely chat um you can go follow him on twitter and instagram those will be in the show notes and yeah um go support gcn and, and watch all their great stuff they've got so much stuff and hopefully we'll get into that next time ta-ta We'll